and welcome back to Franklin Covey's weekly podcast on leadership with Scott Miller. That's me. I'm your host and interviewer each week. I have the privilege of sitting in this chair every week and curating great conversations on audio and video for millions now of listeners worldwide where we have the honor of interviewing best-selling authors and business titans and four-star generals and celebrities and people who may not, in fact, even be household names but they perhaps survived or suffered some tragedy or researched some great way to live our lives as a better leader. Perhaps it's a leader in your organization, mid-senior executive level. Maybe you're a first-time new leader. Perhaps you're just trying to be a better leader as an entrepreneur or a solopreneur or even an intrapreneur. Or maybe you're actually leading your family, your spouse, your partner, your children. Each week, we try to bring you great and interesting guests. And every year, I also have the privilege of codifying those in a multi-volume book series from HarperCollins called Master Mentors. Volume 1 and Volume 2 are out in print, audio, digital, and audio books from Lit Video, where every year with the permission of 30 guests, I write a chapter highlighting a transformational insight from 30 of those years' guests. And it's kind of easy, breezy, chicken soup for the leadership soul. And I'm on to the, four, the third volume coming out in the fall where there'll be 10 volumes over 10 years. Who knows, maybe today's guest might give me the privilege to write about something profound she will say. Her name is Bozma, Bozma St. John. She is the author of the recent release, The Urgent Life. My story of love, loss, and survival you know her as one of the icons in media marketing today. She's had a storied career we'll talk about. Bozma, welcome to On Leadership. Thank you so much, Scott. I'm glad to be here. We're, we're honored to have you here. As I told you off air, I've been chasing you for a year and a half, and you never knew it. So your publicist did a good job of protecting you from me, but I'm pretty relentless. So we are truly honored to have you joining the pantheon of our guests the last five years where we've had the privilege of interviewing Deepak Chopra, Arina Huffington, Tony Robbins, Brene Brown, Liz Wiseman, Seth Godin. And now here we are adding your insights, both personally and professionally, to this podcast. Um, Bozma, would you rewind? Today I want to talk both about the, the personal tragedies that you've faced, that you've been very courageous and vulnerable in talking about, the professional triumphs you've had, unlike no one of our generation, your ability to manage your brand, which is big, with the brands of your employers. We'll talk about that balance and give people a chance to know, you know how to bring themselves to work but still promote the brand independent of themselves. Will you rewind a couple of decades and talk about your upbringing, the value that the diversity of your upbringing brought to your, your mindset, the way you view the world and, and inclusion of all people? And then we'll get down to some questions on the things you've been through and how others can learn from those. Wow, that is, that is quite a start. <laughs> um, well, Scott, there's been so much that I could have probably written about or think about or talk about in my life. But uh, to your points, like where, where do we start? You know, perhaps we start at um, my parents who are originally from Ghana in West Africa. Uh, so the short version is that they immigrated to the U.S. several times, actually, over my childhood, uh, but finally settled in Colorado Springs, Colorado, when I was 12. So although I am technically an American citizen, I do feel very bicultural, meaning that in my house that I grew up in, we were very Ghanaian, meaning that we ate the food, we spoke the language, we, you know, did all the cultural things that a Ghanaian person would do if they were living in Ghana. Uh, and it afforded me the opportunity to 
really understand more about the connectivity, you know, of being the other or being the outsider, trying to find the ways in which you are attached, you know, to the greater, the greater group. Uh, for me, it meant that being at the, you know, bottom of the Rocky Mountains, uh, where there was very far away from anything Ghanaian, I had to find my connection through pop culture, meaning that I became a student of everything music, everything fashion, everything politics, everything sports. Oh, gosh. I think if there was a pop culture jeopardy for that time, <laughs> late 80s, early 90s, I'd probably be the grand champion. Now, don't, don't uh, you know, challenge me to that. But at the same time, I'm, I'm very, very thankful you know, for that time of life because it taught me a number of things. One, the fact that you know, the, the great equalizer is culture. You know, it's the things that are happening in and around us. And also the understanding that um, to have a unique perspective or to be different is not terrible. It's not terrible. It is a thing that makes you stand out. And if you can manage the spotlight, it's a pretty good edge to have. Bozma, you have had a storied career. I mean, talk about PepsiCo, Apple, Endeavor, Uber, Netflix. I mean, you've had a remarkable career from the front line to the C-suite, managing music relationships, managing customer interface. I'm guessing you have, at the same time, built this remarkable brand as a best-selling author and a coach and a speaker. How have you, how have you learned to balance what is a brand that is, you know, when you walk into a room, people notice with your education, mm-hmm. with your credentials, with the way you yeah. also present yourself. How have you, yeah. how have you balanced what is a big brand for you, you know, Bozma Inc., with all of these other brands that you have worked with and progressed? Any advice you would give to people like me that have big personalities, big charisma, big brands? But we also want to make sure that people don't feel like we're opportunists or we're interlopers. We're there for self-serving needs. Hmm. Any advice you would give us on that balance? That is so complicated. Yes. <laughs> it's really, really yeah. a heavy one. Um, gosh, Leslie, where do I want to go in first? Um, it might be to start with the fact that uh, as people, you know, our brand exists. There aren't any people who don't have a brand. It's called a reputation, right? You walk in with one. Or maybe you don't walk in with one, but you'll get one very quickly, regardless of where you are. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter if it's a small company, big company. It doesn't matter even what your role is. You will get one. And so my belief about that has always been that I want to be the one in control of my reputation and therefore of my brand. I don't know why we pit that idea of having a brand or having a personality against the greater good of the entire company or the collective effort of all the employees against a single goal. You know, it, it really doesn't make any sense to me. I think maybe because I see myself as a specialist. You know, it's like, look, if I want a mechanic, I want to know that mechanic. <laughs> I want to know that person's a mechanic. I want to know the work they've done. I want to make sure the cars that they've fixed are still on the road. And so as I have grown in my career, part of what you see as a personal brand is simply me putting a stamp on myself and saying, I am the marketer. I am the best pop culture marketer. If you want pop culture marketing, you come to me. 
And part of that confidence, is, of course, is in doing the work and doing it well at several companies. Um, but I don't want us to continue, especially as leaders, to make people feel like they can't bring themselves into the work. There, there really shouldn't be that, especially when you are trying to achieve something that is different from everything else on the planet. You know, the collection of people that you have on your team is what makes the work special. You know, and wouldn't you want those people to bring exactly what they have that is different from other people? You know, and so when I think about, and maybe I'll make the analogy to a sports team. You know, it's like, look, you don't just want a three-point shooter. You want somebody like Steph Curry. <laughs> you know, if you can go get Steph Curry, you want Steph Curry. And I think there are so many positions like that that we look about in our work and we don't necessarily encourage people to bring their full selves, to show their full personality. Um, and I think that's a disservice, you know, it's a disservice to the people because they can't, they can't fully blossom into everything that they are because they're too busy spending their energy trying to hide it, trying to be like everybody else, trying to assimilate into a culture. And maybe that actually connects to the first question you asked me around, you know, the beginnings. Because in Colorado Springs, Colorado, I could not assimilate. I was the black African girl who was taller than most people. You can't see how tall I am here, but almost six feet tall, right? And even back then I was that tall. <laughs> and I couldn't assimilate. There was no way I was ever gonna be blonde, blue-eyed, any, any of the things. And so I couldn't assimilate. I had to be myself. And I have simply brought that into my work so that when I am in a company and we are working towards a specific goal, I am bringing exactly what I have. I'm not trying to bring what somebody else has. I'm bringing what I have. And that has earned me the brand and the reputation that I have. Bozma, I want to touch on something. You have a remarkable level of self-confidence, even contagious. I mean, you refer to yourself as, if you want an expert in pop culture marketing, you come to me. And as I was thinking, if I was listening to you say that, I thought, What's my version of that? I, I'm guessing it's probably, if you want expertise on writing and launching a book, you come to me. I have 30 years experience, but I don't often declare that because in many cultures that sounds self-serving or arrogant, but I want you to address, maybe that's a Utah culture, by the way, but how, honestly, how do you balance a sense of self-confidence and self-validation? If you want that, you come to me with not making it off-putting to people, or do you even care about that? Have you, just, have you built your skills, your, acad your academics, your experience so profoundly that you feel mm -hmm. so comfortable stating that as fact, you don't really care if people believe that or not? And there's, there's, a, there's an intersection there, is there not, between delivering on your self-confidence and having some be inspired by that, jealous by that, or intimidated by that. Take that wherever you want to go. Woof, 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 woof. This is a very spicy conversation. Great, like bring it, it on. Um, you know, I think this is, this is such a hot button topic because I won't pretend as if I haven't been accused of being self-serving or arrogant. Uh, I've certainly been accused of that. And I've, I've always found it really surprising you know, because I really love my work. Like I, I'm a marketer not because I'm just good at it. I'm a marketer because I love it. You know, it's something I think about all the time. I'm that 
terrible guest at the cocktail party who only wants to talk about this. <laughs> you know, who wants to talk about the commercials on the Super Bowl or that terrible thing that the that company did or that brand could have done better. You know, I'm that person. Now, part of that also is because, and part of part of the reason why I think I've earned that reputation to some degree um, of being arrogant or self-serving is that you're right, I'm not shy about saying who I am and what I contribute. And some of that is a factor of being a Black woman in these spaces, that I have often felt that I have not been the recipient of the respect I deserve. I'll tell you, Scott, I refuse to be a hidden figure. Refuse. Like, that that won't be me. I saw that movie, and I was like, that's a damn shame. That is a damn shame that it took until these women were almost in their... I think the... Is the last one still living? I mean, she's like almost 100 years old or something, right? And now we're praising them for the work that they did? Like, why, why should I wait for that? Especially knowing what I know about the work I've done and the influence I've had and the contributions I've made. And so to some degree, what you asked me if I care, no, I don't care. I don't care if people think that that is arrogant or it is off-putting because I don't think that the general culture, now I'll make the general, the general statement that they care so much about my legacy or whether or not I will be remembered. And so if anybody's going to be in charge of that, it's going to be me. Beautifully said. Let's pivot on that. Uh, you're, you've been quoted as saying you don't believe in five-year plans. And I don't know how old you are. It's immaterial. You're younger than me. And that's what matters. But again, you've had a storied career at some of the biggest brands on the planet. And I'm guessing, like many people of your generation, you dip in, you bring your expertise, you take what you can, you give all you have, and you move to the next opportunity to build your skills, make an impact, and you move. To what extent has your career been serendipitous, accidental, hyper-deliberate, super-intentional? And from that, what lessons are there to say to those that are listening, stop with this 30-year loyalty thing. Here's the formula you ought to be expecting from yourself and from the organization. And when that formula is solved, move forward. You take that wherever you'd yeah. like to go. Yes, yes, yes. Ooh. Now, this is, this is actually, it is a build on what we're just talking about. You know, when I, early on in my career, when I started to look around at who was successful, who was being promoted, who was getting the raises, um, again, this will go back to the point that there just aren't enough people like me in these rooms who are achieving, not because they're not smart, not because they're not hardworking, but because they're not being given the credit. And so I started to realize that I would have to promote myself, you know, both literally and figuratively, right? Meaning that I had to promote myself, yes, by giving myself the credit on the things that I was contributing, making sure that I was being vocal about it. There were too many reviews I had at work, especially early on, where managers would say things like, oh, well, you know, we, we don't, we, we can't point out the thing that you've done versus the one that he's done. You know, and I, I would be confused because I say, but how is that possible? You know, when, when I, I did do the work, those were my results. And so then I had to begin promoting myself, yes, both verbally and then realizing that when I got the review that said, 
you know, you're going to have to wait another six months. You're going to have to wait another year in order to achieve, unlock this particular position that that was not going to be satisfactory to me. I would be stuck in the middle forever. And so then I had to start looking around and saying, okay, well, if I needed more experience, then I should go get it somewhere else because perhaps you're not willing to allow me the opportunity to get that experience. And so I started to think about how to do that in a way that was going to be most beneficial to myself. And yes, in that regard, I am very much focused on my own well-being and my own growth. It doesn't mean that I don't contribute to the place where I am because that's the only way that I can amass essentially the experience, right? Is to do the work. And so it's a, I feel like it goes hand in hand. So for many people, I think who are looking at how to, let's just say move gracefully through their career, um, mine has been intentionally about my own growth. How can I not just give to an organization, but how can I also take from it? What can it give me to make me sharper and better and that much fiercer as a contributor? And when I find that it is not working any longer or I have fulfilled what it is I came for, yes, that's when I move. And I'm okay with that. I don't think that we should be fiercely loyal to any company but our own. Bozma, your credibility is not in dispute. Uh, Billboard Top Women in Music, Billboard Female Executive of the Year, Fortune 40, Under 40, Ad Age 50 Most Creative People, Ad Week Most Exciting Personalities in Advertising, Ebony 100 Most Powerful Executives, Fast Company 100 Most Creative People, Fortune Disruptors, and on and on and on. You, you have clearly built a skill set and a level of uh, a communication and influence that people have recognized. At the same time, your book is called The Urgent Life. Mm-hmm. I understand you have a you have a interesting relationship with mediocrity and others. And you have like a sense of urgency in life to get things done. I mean, look at the list of accomplishments in your of the young age of who cares. Uh, talk about your lack of patience with mediocrity, with yourself and with others that you work with, you work for, and who work with you. Hmm. Yeah. My impatience with mediocrity. <laughs> it's, it's interesting. I, um, I actually not thought of it that way. And so I'm glad that you brought that up because perhaps part of the confidence that I have, right, that shows up when I walk into a room or I'm in a conversation is because at the very end of the day, you know, my overall goal without the five-year plan is that I want to be the best. I want to be the best at what I do. And perhaps that is something from childhood, my immigrant parents who left their homeland to come here to give us, their children, a better opportunity. And their expectations are up here. And they're not, they're not expecting you to just pass. C grades are not good enough. It's the A plus, the extra credit. That is where you want to be. And I think maybe from a early age, that has been my the way I've operated. But as an adult, the urgency in my life has been around the intention of making sure 
that I am honing all those experiences to be the best. And I believe that all of us should be trying to do that. You know, I don't want to leave this planet without having exhausted all of the talents that I have, that I was born with, that I came here with, that I want to make sure that whatever legacy I leave is the best of my ability. And so urgency to me was born both out of my, um, I think my upbringing, but then also out of these experiences I've had as an adult in my personal life, which has shown me that life, although, you know, might sound morbid, but I use it as inspiration, is that life is going to come to an end at some point. And so why waste any of it? Why waste a year of it? Doing what? Waiting for some opportunity to show itself? No, I want to go get it. And so there is, for me, a real need to find the sources of joy. And joy is not a pithy thing. You know, it's not, it's not just like that um, hollow happiness, although that's not bad either, <laughs> sometimes, you know? Shoes. But the real joy in, in my life, and life is not separated by like, oh, this is my business life and this is my personal life. I know we've been taught to do that. I know that that's what, that's what we're supposed to do, but it's not possible. You know, we show up, we show up. You, maybe you're supposed to leave your bags at the door, but you don't do that. You come in with it. And so I want to be able to live a life that I am very, very happy with, which means that I have to leave some of it up to spontaneity. I have to leave some of it up to the magic of the universe and you know opportunities that come. Mm. And so, yes, when I was sitting in my very comfortable office at Apple and I reached out to Ariana Huffington because she was on the board of Uber and I was watching the hashtag delete Uber campaign like just taking over my social media. And I was so fascinated by how this golden child company was coming crashing down. And then I met Travis Kalanick and we had a deep conversation for like eight hours. I was like, oh, okay. Even though I'm here at Apple, very comfortably in Cupertino, I got to go over there. That's where I've got to be. That's where the opportunity is. That's where the experience is. That's how I become sharper as a marketer, as a brand specialist. That's where I go. And so those opportunities have come to me sometimes spontaneously, uh, but it is my intention to go after the opportunities that make me better. I think what I'm taking from this personally is I, according to my wife, I'm a very controlling person. And so, but I like, it's true, I, I like to be in charge of my life. I don't want someone else in charge of my life, right? This phrase, you're never in the room when someone decides your career for you is horrifying and true. And I never wanted to be on the receiving end of somebody else's decision about my life. As a result, I've been extremely intentional. But I think I don't let enough serendipity into my life. I, I, I'm going to go do that. I'm going to make that happen no matter what. And then I'm going to go do this. I'm going to make that happen. I think what I hear from you, from someone who's had a very intentional strategy, you also balance it with some level of We'll see what happens. Yeah, yeah, I think to some degree, but it's always with the vision that I want to be great. You know, so, so I maybe where we, where we join up or marry up is that um, I do want to be in control of my brand and my reputation. 
And that for me goes hand in hand with the experiences and the betterment of myself. And so the serendipity is in how it actually happens. Not that it happens, it is in the how. So that if a new opportunity presents itself, which is going to make me better, then I go for that thing. I don't need to be in control of necessarily the path. I just know my destination. I know where I want to go at the very end. Bozma, your book is The Urgent Life, My Story of Love, Loss, and Survival. You talk very raw about the loss of uh, a boyfriend's tragic death, your husband's passing, the loss of your daughter in the seventh month of your pregnancy. I saw some interviews on Oprah where you talked about how you were a mom without a baby. And it was a visceral experience for me as a guy. My wife, Stephanie, we have three young boys that are very healthy and thriving. And my wife had a miscarriage on her birthday. Mm. And I took her to lunch, hoping to fix it at a restaurant. I didn't understand the gravity that that miscarriage had had on my wife. I tried to fix it by taking her to a restaurant. I am unspeakably stupid. And I've learned. Mm. You, you mentioned in an interview on Oprah.com, I think it was, that you, uh, for unfortunate reasons, outside of your control, you were forced to give birth to your child and you lost your child. And you were, your, your body was becoming a mother without a baby. Mm. I interviewed someone recently. They talked about how after tragedy, we spend a lot of time talking about PTSD, which is more than real. And we don't talk about the growth that also comes in tragedy. Did you experience some growth in the loss of your partner, your husband, your child that you might impart to others right now that are dealing with some trauma of their own and that by tapping into your strength and your growth through your own tragedy, they might be able to find a glimmer of hope or joy in a moment of unspeakable pain? Yes, yes. Oh, isn't it incredible how we find each other in each other's stories. I think that has been the most remarkable discovery for me in this process of writing and then now in talking about my book is that conversations like, you know, and stories like what you just shared about your own family and your wife's uh, miscarriage is, um, I just find it so remarkable that we have so many stories that can link to each other. Yeah. You know, as, as human beings that, um, you can have an experience that is not like mine at all, but still have some connectivity. And that is true for all of us. You know, and so I don't doubt that there are many people who are in this conversation with us, who are nodding or who are wiping tears or who are considering their own loss or their own trauma in various ways. It doesn't have to be that you lost your partner. It doesn't have to be that you lost a child. It doesn't have to be that you love someone who died by suicide. It doesn't have to be any of those specific things. It could be so many other things. And so then the question that you've asked, how do you see hope? Or how do you recoup from that becomes almost the question that is impossible to answer. You know, because we all have various and different ways of coping with these losses. One of the phrases that I hated most when my husband was dying of cancer was when people would say, take it one day at a time. And it was just so annoying to me because I thought, 
my days suck. They are awful. I don't want to do this. This is not what I signed up for. And the only thing that could really pull me through those days was understanding the depth of my grief, even as I was living. You know, that it didn't, it didn't, it didn't have to wait until he died for me to begin grieving him. And so that forced me then to better appreciate the moments I had. And I know that might sound so corny, but it is so true. You know that when you're faced with that kind of death, life becomes so clear about what the important things are, about what you want. You know, when my daughter died, I knew that I didn't want to be a mother without a child. I knew I, I wanted a baby. And therefore, it gave me hope and aspiration to go and do that. You know, when my husband died, yes, of course, I grieved him deeply. I still grieve him. But it also gave me hope that I want to be loved like that again. You know, that love doesn't have to come to an end because he's no longer here. And for me, it's this idea that the life that we're living is not to be lived passively. It's not to be lived doing the mundane, <laughs> hoping that the weekend will come. It is to be lived right now, in this very moment. So I am inspired by loss because I understand the depth of it. I understand the absence of it. And so I want to make sure that even as I'm living my life through these tragedies, through these traumas and what now I put on paper, that other people who are dealing with any kind of loss or trauma will have a better appreciation for what they do have, even though they have lost something that will fell them or will that make them feel incomplete, that hopefully there is some life to still be lived, some love to still be felt, some triumphs to still grab, and that life will be worth it at the end. Bose, tell me about the tennis shoes, the basketball shoes that are in that case beside you. <laughs> well, those, those uh, have very special meaning. They are signed by Flo Jo or sure. Forrest Griffith sure. Joyner. Of course. Yes, I ran track uh, in high school and, and college. I was a sprinter. And uh, when people ask me, you know, who my inspiration is, I usually say Flo Jo which I'm sure it comes as a surprise because it should be probably some business person somewhere. Uh, but Flo Jo was a dynamo, you know, the one who wore the fashions that she wanted at a time when you were supposed to be, you know, wearing black on the track and she would wear one leg out <laughs> and the other in her leggings or her hair flying in the wind or jewelry, et cetera, or the fierce red nails. So I appreciate it, Flo Jo. And tell me off your other shoulder, there appears to be a handwritten letter you have there. Tell me about that. Yes. Oh, that's from my daughter. That's from Lael, who is uh, 13 now. She wrote that last year. And it's a thank you letter that she spontaneously left for me on my desk. And I wanted to always remember uh, that she, at some point, was grateful. <laughs> yeah, tell me about it. Uh, Bozma, send us off with some marketing advice. Um, let's talk about... Um, organizational conscience, mm -hmm. meaning to what extent are organizations, companies, 
responsible for taking a position on societal issues, whether it be Black Lives Matter or social justice or what's happening in Ukraine or transgender issues or in Florida that horribly or geniusly named don't say gay, whatever the issue is de jour, what is your opinion as a, as, a, as a renowned chief marketing officer and strategist, as an expert in brand building and developing business and connecting with users and soon-to-be users of our products and services? What do you want to say to the C-suite to say, listen up, this ain't going away, you need to do this? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. This ain't going away. In fact, our culture is becoming that much more open that much more transparent. And I realize the dangers that come with that. First of all, we all are afraid of cancel culture, right? You don't wanna say the wrong thing and then have everyone come against you and say, ah, why did that person say the thing? But the challenge is that we can't have both ways. You know, companies used to be brick and mortar. We would know the name Pepsi-Cola, but you wouldn't know who was behind the desk making the decisions. And now culture wants to know. People want to know, our consumers want to know, our audiences want to know. Who is that person? What do they believe? How are they moving? What is the decision they made yesterday? And I think the confusion that some leaders have is that somehow you have to be like everybody in order to be loved or to be liked or to be respected. That is not true. You know, think about your own life. Think about people that you've met who are nothing like you, right? Who may have some different belief systems than you do, uh, maybe you're a different religion than you are, uh, but you don't disregard them, right? I mean, most of us really shouldn't. Right. We should look at people as if they are whole human beings who have an entire opinion unto themselves and respect them for it. And so what I counsel uh, current leaders is that, look, people need to know who you are, and it's okay to be authentic and real and honest. And if there's a part of you that you feel is embarrassing... <laughs> or dangerous to your reputation, then that's maybe a different conversation we need to have around crisis, you know? But for the most part, what people want to know is who you are authentically. That way, when you make a decision that perhaps goes wrong or is not liked by everyone, there's an opportunity for grace. The problem is that we expect perfection from ourselves and from our colleagues. That is not possible. Human beings don't even trust perfection, you know? Haven't you ever heard or seen the behavior that like when something's perfect, what do people do? They start looking for the wrong thing or a perfect situation. Everybody says, oh, I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop. We don't trust perfection anyway. And so why do we think that our leaders have to be perfect? They don't, they just have to be human. So perhaps that's the brand strategy, be human. Bozma, I'm mindful of our time. Last question, uh, anything you would draw upon your own professional marketing, branding, communication, connecting experience that you wished more organizations were doing, whether it was connecting on social media or being out with their clients or being in grocery stores, watching their products be consumed. I mean, is there something you would say is some fundamental behavior that you think organizations should be either tapping into or stretching their skill set to be involved in? Maybe it's AI or the yeah. metaverse. Where would you take that? You know, it's actually not anything about technology at all, but rather about pop culture. You know, if we're going to tie this all the way back around, um, pop culture, I think, sometimes gets a bad rap because it's as if it's like the trend. It's the thing that is the hottest, coolest, and we're afraid that we're not going to know the thing, and so therefore we don't want to be involved. No, pop culture just simply means, like, what are people talking about today? 
If you were to go to the grocery store, what are people buying? You know, what are they concerned about? If you were to be in uh, your local Y, you know, what are people, what are the activities that they enjoy? Or maybe it's politics. What are people talking about right now? You know, what are they concerned about? And for me, the idea that we remove ourselves from that information actually makes us such terrible leaders. Because first of all, how are we supposed to lead the people on our team? And then secondly, how are we going to make decisions for a wide mass of people if we don't know what it is they're interested in? And so instead of sitting up in our, in our offices, cloistered away from what is happening every day, let's be more curious about pop culture, be more curious about what is happening in the world and it'll help us make better decisions. Bose, what's next for you? Oh, serendipity. We'll see what happens. Bosma St. John, apparently running for Congress because she won't tell us what's next. Your book is The Urgent Life, My Story of Love, Loss, and Survival. It's a riveting book. I think one of my favorite takeaways from you is sort of this balance of being open to what could be that I can't see yet, while being impatient with uh, mediocrity and wanting to live my life the best way I can. I appreciate the time you invested in our listeners and viewers today. You're a class act. Oh, thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure. I really appreciate the honor of being here and having this discussion. Thank you. The pleasure is ours. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership. Mm -hmm.